thing. Anyway, one of the recurring crisis moments in my life takes place as we're about to conclude a series and it's time to start thinking about what to do next. And uh, it always seems like the possibilities are endless. And um, at times the direction is kind of easy to take and even as a guy it's easy for me to pick up on which direction we should go. For instance, in our last series when a friend says, I dare you to do a study of the book of Ruth. I, well, I picked up on that one right away and I thought, well, that could be the direction we could take. And uh, so I thought, well, we'll go ahead and do that. But a lot of times, uh, the inspiration, so to speak, is a little more subtle. And uh, as we were concluding our last study in the book of Ruth, I had a gentleman come up to me and he asked me the question, and that is, you know, what are we going to be doing next? Or what's the next series going to feature? And unbeknownst to me or to him at that particular time, he would become the inspiration for this series because it was a few days later that the Lord took him home. And uh, one of the things that, that stood out as I was preparing a eulogy for his memorial service, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, and as I was reading through this, specifically looking at this passage, uh, the, the theme for our series basically jumped out at me, and, it, and it's this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13, we read these words says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And that's a euphemism for those who have physically died. Their bodies are dead, but their spirits are still alive. It says, but about those that we don't want you to be uninformed. Uh, and it goes on to say that, you know, that you may not grieve as do the rest who do not have hope. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And the thing that jumped out at me as, as I was going through and preparing uh, for this particular memorial service was it says, you know, we, it, God says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And I thought, man, isn't that true? What God is saying is that there are those who have hope in life. There are those who have no hope at all. And to them, existence here on earth is hopeless and meaningless. There's no purpose, rhyme, nor reason to it. And then there are those who even have that hope that at times can lose that hope. And I thought, man, you know what? That's really something that we need to talk about. The whole idea of hope. Because every one of us needs some hope. Those who have no hope. Those even who have hope can still lose that hope. And then, uh, although, you know, one other little side note here, and I was just thinking about it, was that, you know, it's basically talking about the day that Jesus comes back and takes his church to be with him. Now, Mark and I were discussing this, and you know, there's a whole lot of viewpoints on when this is going to take place. You know, some are, are what they call pre-tribulationists, or they believe that this rapture or this taking away of God's people by the Lord is going to take place before the tribulation. And then there are those who believe it's going to happen at the midpoint in that seven years, at the three and a half year mark, and there are those who will say it will happen afterwards. Well, as Mark and I were discussing the, the whole situation here at Kindred, we've come to believe that regardless of your view, not you because you're here on time, but those who come late every week, that Jesus is going to take them on the second batch. 
you know, it's just kind of his way of getting even with him for being late at, at everything else. It'll be kind of like, you know, you were late, and so you missed the first round, and, and well, then I'll come for you again. But you can't find any biblical support of that. It's just kind of a wild idea that we had, a little theory. Um, so take it for what it's worth. And those of you who are here today, Larry seems to miss the point. You didn't have a problem with the time change because you're here. So those who aren't will just be picking up this tape next week um, when they show up. But anyway, the point is, is that this passage tells us that there are those who have hope, there are those who don't have hope, and there are those who have hope that can lose hope. And, uh, and that's what I want to discuss because Woody Allen was quoted as to having said this. He said, there are two paths in life. One leads to hopelessness and extinction, or hopelessness and utter despair. The other leads to extinction. He says, we must pray for wisdom to choose wisely. Well, now, I don't know, that's, that's a little bit tragic, if you ask me. One leads to hopelessness and utter despair. And I think the world that we live in is looking for hope. And, it's, and that evidence is all around us. Time Magazine recorded some letters that were written by readers uh, reacting to the return of Star Wars uh, to the theaters. And two letters caught my eye. Let me just sh- share them with you. First letter is this. Star Wars is the book of virtues set in a galaxy far, far away. Our chaotic cosmos longs for the moral force of courage and loyalty and discipline and love and faith. It says, may these forces be with us all. Well, as I was going through the other letters, another caught my eye, and it's even in more poignant terms, and it, and it reads this way. It says, in a world plagued by catastrophe and sometimes inhuman events, Star Wars gives us hope that good will triumph in the end. Now, it's not a bad movie. And, you know, now it's all tweaked and done right. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's even you know, a little more from a special effects standpoint. It's, it's kind of even better than it was originally. But Star Wars gives us hope? I don't know, but, you know, at a recent news conference, an artist who had been so moved by the drive-by shooting of an L.A. teenager, and I'm sure many of us have seen this or read about it or saw it on the news, he painted and donated a mural in her honor to the city of Los Angeles. And during his impassioned speech, he said this, and it, and it caught my attention. He says, you know, if we must, we must, if we are to survive, keep hope alive. If, you know, we must, if we are to survive, keep hope alive. An organization looking for bone marrow donors had a phone number that came across the TV set and it said 1-800-A3M-HOPE. For those who are fighting cancer, there's the city of hope. I ran across another article that said, Finding a stitch of hope. Blankets made to comfort kids in pain also bring warmth to the women who craft them. Hazel Chamberlain, 77, started crocheting half a century ago to pass the time after her husband joined the Navy and the world went to war. Says Neil, uh, Nell Spurlock, 91, began knitting during the Depression when her children needed mittens and sweaters to survive cold Michigan winters. Jeannie Sackett, 82, picked up the knitting needles at 12 to help her mother. She says, I made doilies. Oh, I made doilies and doilies and doilies. But the more time the passed, the fewer reasons they found to make these doilies and blankets. Their husbands died. Their children grew up. Then Vicki Berkman came. The 39-year-old Villa Park woman showed up at the Emerald Court Retirement Home in Anaheim to recruit senior citizens to knit blankets that she could deliver to abused and ill children. And she calls this project of hers Blankets of Hope. You know, hope's a wonderful gift from God. And as, as I was thinking about this whole thing of hope, you know, hope is a source of strength and courage. 
You know, it's when we're trapped in a tunnel of misery that hope, you know, points to the light at the end of the tunnel. It's when we're overworked and we're exhausted. It's hope that gives us fresh energy. It's when we're discouraged that hope lifts our spirits. It's when we're tempted to quit that hope keeps us going. You know, it's when we lose our way and we're confused and, confused and it blurs our destination that hope dulls the, you know, the edge of panic in our life. When we struggle with a disease or lingering illness, hope helps us persevere beyond the pain of the daily treatments or weekly treatments that we must endure. Now, when we must endure the consequences of bad decisions, it's hope that fuels our recovery. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope tells us to keep on keeping on and to keep on looking and that we have some value. You know, it's when we're forced to sit back and wait that hope gives us the patience that we need to trust. You know, when we feel rejected and abandoned, hope reminds us that we're not alone. You know, and, and as we say farewell to someone that we love, it's hope in the life beyond that gets us through our grief. Webster defines hope this way. He says that hope is the desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. To expect with confidence. To expect with confidence. You know, I'm convinced that without hope, prisoners of war will languish and die. I'm convinced that without hope, students get discouraged and they drop out of school. Without hope, athletic teams fall into slump and they continue to lose. Without hope, fledgling writers longing to be published run out of determination. Without hope, addicts return to their habits. Without hope, marriage partners decide to divorce. Without hope, inventors and artists and entertainers and entrepreneurs and even preachers will lose their creativity. You know, hope is vital. It's not just an option, but it's vital to our survival. And uh, biblical hope isn't a kind of a, it isn't a Disney-ish uh, wish upon a star, or I hope I win the lottery, uh, nor is it uh, putting confidence in the dangerous imaginations of an individual who believes that the mothership is following a comet. You know, biblical hope is founded upon solid facts and undeniable evidence. And so just as the book of Philippians helped us to choose joy, our study of the book of 1 Peter will help us to be hopeful. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter will revive our hope. You know, and he should know the subject well because Peter was in great need of hope. At a time in his life when he needed hope most was when he failed miserably before the Lord. And he needed a hope infusion. He needed, and, and, and as we read through what he writes to us to encourage us, we're going to learn and find out that he understood quite well the value of hope. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in this particular session, all that we're going to do is we're going to look at the introduction. But in this introduction, there's some powerful, uh, powerful statements that I believe will help us to renew and to revive our hope. Living a hopeless life is a tragic existence. And there's no reason that God's people should ever get to the point where we feel like there's no hope. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this in the introduction, the salutation, the greeting, so to speak. Peter writes this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. 
It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As I've gone through this and looked at this introduction, there's three things that I want to share with you. That the Three truths that I believe will renew our hope, they'll restore our hope, they'll uh, revive our hope, uh, wh- however you want to look at it. But the bottom line of it is, is that, you know what, we're, we're going to find as we go through this, is that we're going to find that there's hope beyond failure. And that's really what I want to focus on today, because there's hope beyond failure. If you, you know, as we look at this, you know, I want something to sink in for a minute. Peter, as he addresses those to whom he originally wrote this to and ultimately to us, he writes these words or dictates these words and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes as we're reading through introductions, we can go through things so fast that we miss the significance of certain statements. And I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to let that sink into your head because Peter makes a statement of fact that as we will see as we look at his life, it's going to just blow you away at what he's really saying about himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now one of the things that, that I want to share with you and that has been an encouragement to me as I prepare this is this. If you feel your hope is waning and that your hope is fading, I want you to remember Peter and I want you to remember his past failures And then I want you to think about what he just said about himself. And that is this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What we really need to do to appreciate what he's saying here, to fully appreciate it, is kind of take a quick overview of the life of Peter. So we're going to do a little skimming through the Bible here. If you've got to turn to John chapter 1 for a second. And I want you to identify with this man Peter and identify with all that had gone on and transpired in his life before he makes this statement that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 1, we are introduced to him in this manner in verse 35. We read this. John 1, verse 35, it says, Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and behold, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come with me, and you'll see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or four o'clock in the afternoon. It says, now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas in Aramaic, or translated in Greek, the name is Peter. The word Cephas, or the word Peter, means rock. Now, think about this for a second. Your brother comes to you and says, Hey, we have found the Messiah. I want you to come and meet him. And as he comes and approaches Jesus, Jesus sees him walking up to him and says, Hey, you know what? Your name is not Simon anymore. Your name is Cephas, or it's going to be Peter, because you're a rock. You are a rock. Jesus looked at him, knowing him and knowing his destiny, that he would be a rock man in the early years of the church, says to him at that particular time, You are a rock. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's the first thing that Jesus said to me, I mean, like a rock. I mean, we're talking the Chevy commercials pale in comparison to that. Like a rock. Hey, Peter, you're like a rock. Now, Peter can start to take this to his head a little bit. Just got to get puffed up about it. That's right, I'm like a rock. 
He hadn't said that about any of the rest of you, and because he hadn't said that about any of you, I think that I should be the leader. And he emerges as the leader. And he emerges as the spokesperson. And any time any of the disciples speak, it's Peter who speaks first. And the only time the other one spoke is when Jesus asked them a specific question. But Peter was the one who always volunteered to speak first. This guy's like a rock. Look at Matthew chapter 17. He emerges as, and now Peter, James, and John become what we would know as an inner circle of all the disciples. Of all the disciples, Peter, James, and John are the ones who get to witness and to hear Jesus say things and do things that none of the rest ever got to experience. And one example of that is in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, and, uh, and we see this. It says, And six days later Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, those inner three, and brought them up to a high mountain by himself. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as lights. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Can you imagine the last time that, that there's a reference of the Shekinah glory of God? It was Moses as he went up to get the Ten Commandments from God, and as he came back from the mountain, he walked down the hill, and he was lit up. Just being in the presence of God, his face was glowing, and it looked like, you know, it just come from Chernobyl. And, uh, and he, was, he was just lit up. And, and, uh, and the people saw him, and they were, just, they were in awe of what was going on, and the glory of God just shone so radiantly. He just lit up, and here's Moses again with Elijah. And this time, it's Jesus who, who shows the glory of God. Now, this is interesting because, in, behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to, him, to them, and they were talking with whom? With Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. This is good stuff. This is really good that we're here today. Yep, just the three of us, nobody else. This is good. And meanwhile, Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus, and Peter answers. It just shows you what kind of personality we're dealing with here. It's good for us to be here. And I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He's saying, hey, you guys just saw something that nobody else has seen and nor anybody else will know about, and I'm telling you to keep a secret. Now, you know how we feel when somebody tells us something and now it's just our secret, just the one of you know, the two of us or three of us? Hey, we, we know something that nobody else knows. And, and the best thing about it is that we can't even tell anybody. And you know they were dying to. And they came back and the rest of the disciples said, hey, what happened? Oh, can't tell you. <laughs> I know a secret. Can't tell you. Tell you later. And he's feeling a little good about himself. Now this is all after what had happened in Matthew 16. Now look at Matthew 16. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who did he ask the question to? All of them. Who answered? Peter, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. 
Think about this. He asks the tough question, and Peter says, You are God's chosen one. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we're waiting for. You're the anointed one. You're the hope of all Israel. You are Him. And Jesus said, Good answer. Good answer. Now, maybe it's me, but when I get the right answers on a test, I feel good about myself. Think about when your kids come home. That, don't, I mean, when they come home and, man, I aced that one. You know, the ones they don't ace are the ones you have to say, how'd you do on your test? They're not coming in going, hey, I failed that one miserably. I aced that one. Yeah, well, how'd you do in the other class? Hey, but let's concentrate on this one for a moment. You see, that's the way we are. And here's Peter saying, man, you know, I aced this one. And then, you know, and here the Lord reveals his glory to me and tells me to keep a secret. And he's called me the rock man. You're the rock. I'm a spokesman. I'm the team captain. I've witnessed this transfiguration. I answered correctly that you're the Christ. I'm the eyewitness to all these signs and wonders. Man, I have seen it all. And I'm thinking, man, can you, can you imagine what he, what he must have felt like and what he must have gone through when he saw all these miracles of Jesus, all these signs and wonders? And as you go through this long list, and I've got like a chart that tells us all the things that he did, you know, and, and Peter was there and he saw it all. He saw him healing people and, and, and raising people from the dead and he saw miraculous catches of fish and he was there and saw it. And he saw, you know, raising uh, the, 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 the widow's uh, daughter, this widow's son, and, and, uh, and he's, you know, raising dead and, and he's healing people and blind people are seeing and lame people are walking and he's there and he sees all this. He's out in the boat and there's a big storm and Jesus is walking on the water and Peter says, if that's you, tell me to come on out and I'll walk out there to you. And he did and he sunk because he took his eyes off Jesus, but he learned a lesson. He was there and he saw all of this. And on top of all this, I mean, this is all building to this big crescendo that, you know what, God's kingdom is going to be established and I'm an integral part of it. And in Luke chapter 19, we look at it and it kind of all builds to this point. But in Luke 19, we read this. And it's just mind-boggling. All this evidence, unrefutable evidence, undeniable evidence, all these facts, and Peter's able to say, because I've seen all this, I know that you are the Christ. And in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, we read this. And it's kind of, this is the crescendo of everything. It says, and after he had said these things, he went ahead to Jerusalem. And it came about when he approached Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which you, as you enter you'll find a colt that's tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. It says, And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, thus you shall speak, The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on this colt and put Jesus on it. Now, we read through this and we don't stop to think for a minute. This is a colt that was never ridden on by any human being. And anybody that knows anything about riding horses or whatever, you know, it just doesn't happen that easy. You just don't throw your, your cloak over the top of it and sit somebody on it and the colt obeys. But it does when the Son of God's sitting on them. And so there's another miracle that they saw and they're blown away by this. And, they brought, and as they're going into town, as they're approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And that was just one more small one. It says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the book of Mark it says they were shouting Hosanna, which means save us we pray. 
And some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these, be, these become silent, the stones will cry out. Man, I'm thinking to myself, Peter is called a rock. Peter is the spokesman for this group. Peter is one of the inner circle of three. Peter is told secrets that the others don't know about as, at this time. Peter's on the inside. Peter is thinking, God's program is about to unfold and I'm going to be a big part of it. This is great stuff. The Pharisees say to shut up. Jesus says, no way, that even if they shut up, the stones will shout. Peter's got to be thinking, this is it. Roman oppression is over. The kingdom of God is being established. I'm a key guy. I'm part of all of this. I said he's the Christ. He said, good answer, man. I am on a roll. This is awesome. He's the go-to guy. Peter has come to the conclusion that he's his go-to guy. Now I'll throw in my little sports analogies because we just got done watching March Madness. I love March Madness. It's a great time to watch college basketball. March Madness. What Peter was saying to Jesus is this. I'm your go-to guy. I'm the guy when we're down two that you get the ball in my hands and I'm going to shoot the J for the tray. Now I'll translate that into English. That means I'm the guy who will shoot the basketball through the hoop from the three-point line and we're going to win the game. I'm the guy that you can go to. That's the kind of guy I am. Bases loaded, tying run on third. Hey, bring me in. I'm going to strike the guy out. That's who I am. That's me. You can count on me. I won't let you down. I'll get the hit if we need it and we'll win the game. I'll be the guy that scores the touchdown and, and, and I'll be the hero. You can count on me. Now, the only problem with that all this is, is that, you know, as Peter was filled with all this hope and expectation, Jesus broke the news to him. And he said, you know, Peter, they're going to arrest me, they're going to torture me, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, but don't worry about it. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead, and it's all part of the plan of God. And you know what Peter did? He rebuked Jesus. He said, no, that ain't going to happen to you. No one is ever going to harm you. And you know why no one's ever going to harm you? Because I'm your go-to guy. I'll be right here by your side. When they come to you, I'm right here. No one's going to mess with you. That's who I am. And Jesus says, no, you're not. No, you're not. See, because you're not who you think you are at this time in your life. Because when they come to arrest me, you're going to run. You're not going to be by my side. You're just not going to be there. And Peter says, oh, no, not me, Lord. Oh, I'll be there. Now, if this was a, a sporting event, which it's obviously not, this is what, what we would call a change in momentum. A major change in momentum here. They were riding a high, and they were up by 40-some points, and they thought they'd never lose this game. And all of a sudden, Thursday comes, and Jesus says, you know what? One of you guys is betraying me. What? Me? Not me. Is it me? That's not me. Who is it? And they're looking around the room. Who could it be? They go into the garden. Jesus says, hey, stay awake with me while I pray. And they can't stay awake. And Jesus comes back and rebukes them, saying, can't you stay up with me? Hey, go-to guy. Can you stay up with me a little while? No, huh? They come and they arrest him. The go-to guy does make one statement. He stands up. He picks up a sword. He slices off the ear of one of the guys. And Jesus says, put it away and fix the guy's ear. Um, 
now put the sword away, give me your ear, let me put it back on, there it goes. Okay, you're okay again. Um, but, and at that point, Peter doesn't know what to do. And Jesus had, had told him, look, you know what, before this night's even over, you're going to deny even knowing me. Jesus like, I, Peter's, no, not me. But then we see this in Luke 22. There's a definite shift in momentum. Luke 22, 54 through 62. And having arrested him, they led him away. And they brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Now, as I was reading through that, I wrote my Bible, why not by his side, question mark. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. Now, it's interesting. The translation of that word actually means the servant girl is actually a young girl. A little girl comes up to this big fisherman and says, Hey, you were with him. And he looked down at her and said, Nuh-uh. Not me. I don't even know him. A little later, another Solomon said, You are one of them too. But Peter says, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed and another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him. He's a Galilean too. But Peter said to him, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter struck out. Peter threw the ball away. Peter fumbled, threw up an air ball, shot a brick. Threw a pick, walked in a run. He failed miserably. And in his mind, he was, as the kids say today, a loser. (laughs) He's a loser. Jesus is crucified. It's Friday. And there's no hope. It's Friday, and all but one of the disciples are all long gone. It's Friday, and as Tony Campolo always said, it's Friday, and the devil's doing a jig. It's Friday, and Peter quit, and he went back fishing. His hope was gone. The dream had faded. What should have been, what could have been, what ought have been, isn't. Jesus warned him. Jesus tried to prepare him. It may be Friday, he said, but Sunday's coming. It may be Friday and your hope is dead and your hope is gone, but you know what? Don't lose hope because it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Don't be discouraged. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And he tried to warn him and prepare him and saying, hey, you're going to go through a tough time, but don't lose hope because it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And it may be Friday for you today. But what he's trying to tell us and what we're reminded of by the life of Peter and his past failures, it's Friday, you feel like it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's what we need to keep hope alive. We need to remember that it may feel like Friday, but Sunday's coming. And as we look at Peter's life and we're reminded as we see all this, there's a turning point that takes place in Mark chapter 16. 
And we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again because I, like you, get discouraged and I, like you, feel at times that this world is hopeless, beyond hope. It's just beyond belief. And, you know, what are we still doing here? And Peter, he failed miserable. He, he failed miserably. He struck out. He shot the air ball and he quit and he went back to fishing and he's feeling like the biggest loser that ever walked the face of the earth because he was going to be in a position of authority and power and now he has nothing left. And in Mark 16, we read this, And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Siloam, brought spices and they might, that they might come and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they who were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. But he has risen. He's not here. Behold, here in this place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and, oh man, and make sure you tell Peter. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. You know what's awesome to me? What's awesome to me is that people who know these things and they study these things and they, they make you know, uh, observations that some of us miss, but when we read this and it says, go and tell his disciples and Peter that we're told that actually the Gospel of Mark was transcribed by Mark from the words of Peter himself. And could you imagine for a moment this big burly fisherman who had failed God so miserably, who was going to be the go-to guy with a game on the line, and he shot an air ball, and his team lost, at least in his opinion, at that particular point in time, and he didn't know any better. He's telling Mark, hey, and by the way, he said, and Peter, and Peter, i got to believe that the guy wiped away a tear. i got to believe that this guy was broken. I got to believe that he was humbled beyond anything that any of us could ever imagine because even though we make mistakes and fail and we're humbled before God, we weren't there physically with him experiencing everything that they did. This guy was broken. The hope beyond failure as we remember Peter's life. And he says, and go and tell Peter. You know, and the story even gets better than that because in the Gospel of John, we, we see in the, in the last chapters, in verse, uh, chapter 20, look at verse 4. In chapter 20, verse 4, and it says that, and the two that were running together and disciples ran ahead and faster, you know, the first one ran faster than Peter and they came to the tomb. And you know, and for many years I read this and I thought like many people do that, you know what, hey, John was just bragging about the fact that he ran faster than Peter. But one of the things that we need to take into consideration was is as they approached the tomb, maybe Peter slowed down. Maybe he was a little embarrassed. Maybe he realized what a failure was and he was afraid to see Jesus again. Like a child who, who fails their parent and they can't make eye contact. Or a player that fails a coach or a team and they feel so down and rejected that they can't look anybody else in the face. Maybe as Peter got closer to the tomb, he started to slow down and he thought, well, maybe Jesus won't forgive me for what I did. But that's not the case. And as we look at this and we begin to realize it in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, it says, After Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the sons of Zebedee and the other two others uh, of his disciples. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll also come with you. Even in his failure, Peter's still a leader. They said, well, we don't have anything else to do. We'll go with you. It says, and they went with them. They went out and got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. 
And when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples didn't know it was him. Jesus therefore said to them, Hey kids, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered, No. And he said to them, Well, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And any fisherman remembers, especially these guys, because that's how they first met Jesus. They were fishing all night. They weren't catching anything. And it didn't matter. They threw that net on both sides and every side of the boat. And Jesus said, well, I'll throw it on the right side this time. And he threw it on the right side, and they got this big haul of fish. And you know what? The disciples, therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, listen, he did. He put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea, and he couldn't wait to get to the shore to be with him again. Hey, go tell his disciples and Peter that I've risen just as I've said. And it may be Friday in our life, but Sunday's coming, and our hope is based on the truth, the reality, the, the facts, the historical evidence that we have a living Savior. It's not based on wishful thinking of some lunatic that thinks that there's a mothership behind some comet. It's not based on, you know, the imagination of people throughout centuries. The fact that we have a risen Savior is historically reliable. And our hope is based and founded upon facts and undeniable evidence. And because of that, because He lives, we have a living hope. And because it may be Friday, that doesn't mean anything because Sunday's coming. And we need to get to that point in our life where we're not so short or nearsighted that all we see is the misery of the moment. And hope gives us the courage and the strength to recognize that we have already won. All we got to do is play it out. And Peter recognized that. And what we're talking about here is hope beyond failure. Hope beyond failure. And it's important also that we recognize as we go through this to whom this letter was originally written. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you go, man, the loser is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a trip he's been on. You know, and I'm convinced of this. The older that I get, I'm convinced of this. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God can't use any of us greatly until we've been hurt deeply. I'm convinced of that. And I'll tell you why. Because once we have been humbled, and we are crushed, and we are broken the only thing left that we have is that which is valuable. That's all. Just the most important, valuable stuff. God is in the business of taking broken pieces and turning them into His masterpieces. Wow. Isn't that great? I love this stuff. That's what He specializes in. I like what one man said. He says, Between his earlier failure and his, and his writing of this letter, Peter had been used of God as the catalyst in the formation of the early church. It says that they marveled at this uneducated fisherman. And let me just put a little side note in here because I think some of us are guilty of falling into this thinking. Peter was an uneducated fisherman that meant simply this, that not that he wasn't a bright person, but that he had never been trained in the rabbinical schools. He had never had formal religious training. And this man who ran from Jesus' side now stood in front of people and boldly declared, Hey, you know what? This Jesus whom you've crucified, He is alive. Whoa, what happened to Him? I'll tell you what happened to Him. He saw a risen Savior. 
He came into a relationship with God. He saw a risen Lord, and it changed his life. It was a turning point. And when the Spirit of God came into his life on Pentecost, he had the power and the boldness to speak boldly before the masses of people, and God's strength was within him, and he was just able to stand up where before he ran, now he could stand up and boldly preach. And they were blown away by it. And I guess the point of all of it is this. Never underestimate what God can do in the life of a person who has seen a risen Savior and has the Spirit of God living within him or her. When are we going to get to the point where we recognize and understand that this is all about God and not about us? And so many times we look at man-made requirements to determine whether someone is worthy of certain things. Let me just tell you something. If God is working through someone, then get your man-made requirements out of the way and let God do what He wants to do. That's what it comes down to. And we're all so guilty of thinking this. You can't do this. I got people who are blown away. They ask, on what seminary did you go to, Chuck? I didn't go to any. Well, 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 I can read and I can study and if God's gifted someone with a gift, I can exercise it. And I guess sometimes that's all that we really need to do is just be obedient with the gift that God's given us. So guess who gets all the glory and all the credit? God does. I think He likes that. Just a thought. Take it for what it's worth. Oh, you know, I hate when I run out of time, but you got to remember, I haven't been here for three weeks, and I was... Count on keeping you here till about 11. <laughs> but I know I can't do that. But let me just go through this quickly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we'll touch more on this in, in, the, in our next session next week. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered. I like what he's saying here. Three descriptions of the people that he wrote to, and that includes us. To God's elect. Some of us lose hope because we forget that it's God who chose us and not we who chose Him. Some of the most hopeless people I've ever met struggle with their relationship with God because they think somehow that it's all based on their decision to believe in Jesus Christ. And what we need to recognize and understand, the only way we can respond is because He invited us to respond and we in obedience chose Christ, but we don't really choose Him because He has already chosen us. You got that? We'll talk more about it next time. But it's awesome because it'll eliminate the hopelessness in your life. It's not based on my choice or your choice. It's based on God's choice of us and the foreknowledge and keeping with the knowledge of God. The second thing is, he says that we are strangers in this world. Some of us get so bummed out because people in this world don't like us. And we feel so hopeless. It's so hopeless. My coach will never like me. It's so hopeless. My teacher will never like me. It's so hopeless. You know, my, my peers won't like me. My coworkers. It's so hopeless. I don't know what I'm going to do to have these people like me. Can I give you a Channel 7 news flash here for a second? We are strangers, aliens, sojourners. The point is this, God's people, our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth. We are in the world, we're not of it, we're going to be different than the world, and we don't have to go around trying to be geeks or boobs. I mean, because some of us try to go out of our way to be totally idiots, so that everyone will know how different we are. Well, you know what, let me just tell you something that I believe. And I just jotted some things down that, that I've run into in my life, but what's fascinating is this. You know what, telling the truth is different in this world. Right? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. 
uh, stopping rumors is different in this world. Amen? Amen. Encouraging others and not being critical is different in this world. Giving of your time and your money and of yourself is different in this world. Right? Thank you. Forgiving others and not being resentful and bitter and full of malice and strife and anger and, and hatred. Forgiving others is different. Not cheating is different. Working hard is different. Being faithful is different. Being debt-free is different. Uh, valuing integrity more than money is different. Waiting till after you get married to have sex is different. Being a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker is different. We are just different. So have hope. Because if you are different, because you do these things, that means that your citizenship is in heaven. If you put your faith and trust in Christ and you live a life of obedience to God, you will be different. Thank you. And it's okay. We don't have to be be hopeless about it. We can have courage and strength to be different because we are different. It's so easy. It's easy. And then we're scattered. The word is diaspora, which means uh, uh, dia or through or spore was, was seed. And, and God said, hey, you know what? Here's God's program. Sometimes we feel hopeless because I'm in a company and there's no other Christians. And, the, and the guy, I, I think I mentioned to you, a guy told me that once. He said, well, pre, please pray for me. I said, no, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all the people you work with, you little wimp. Because they need you to stand up. And be a light and be a salt in that environment. You go, oh, please pray for me. I'm the only Christian on my team. I'm the only Christian on in my workplace. I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood. And I'm thinking, they are all going to be lost forever. If it's based on you. That's God's plan. To take that seed and scatter it. Put us all over the place. So they can't get rid of us. We're everywhere. Isn't that great? Have hope. If you're all alone, you're not all alone. You're in a great place, a strategic location. You're Jesus' go-to guy in that environment. And you can do it. By how? By being obedient to God. And you'll be different. And you'll stand out. Why did he write all this stuff? What's the purpose of this letter? Hey, the purpose is simple. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and His great mercy has given us new birth into what? Into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of like take Easter for granted. You know, it's just Easter again. And you forget that everything we believe is founded upon the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave and he was alive. He's alive. He's alive and they saw him and they witnessed him and 500 people saw him and they witnessed him and wimpy people like Peter saw him and it changed his life to the point where he stood boldly and preached the gospel and he went boldly to his death and he was martyred and he was crucified like Jesus was but he said he wasn't worthy and he said, turn me upside down. And the question that I ask and the question has been asked throughout centuries in human history is this, who would die for a lie? They weren't willing to die when they thought things were going to work out their way. And when it didn't work out, they came back and they died for a lie? That's not a lie. Never has been. Jesus is alive. 
And the fact that we're here and the fact that some of us have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we're born into a living hope, we know that because His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're a child of God. And we have hope. This isn't hopeless. And it's not based on wishful thinking. I sure hope the ship is there. But what's tragic about that is this, and I want to make a very serious point here. Those people were willing to kill themselves on a wishful whim of the imaginations of a lunatic. And some of us aren't even willing to stand up in our our work environment. Some of us aren't willing to stand up on an athletic team. Some of us aren't willing to stand up in our neighborhood and be counted for the cause of Christ because we're embarrassed. Embarrassed about what? Ashamed of what? Wanting to be loved by whom? Man, that's sad, isn't it? That's sad. Because we have a living hope. Those people had no hope. And yet they were willing to take their own lives. Wow. There's the tragedy to me that God's people who have a living hope, undeniable evidence, historically reliable facts, are willing to be more bold than we are. And in times of persecution, which we're going to see next time we're together, is that Peter wrote this to those listeners, to those readers, to us, because he said, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. Why? So that I would encourage you to have hope. So that I can help you to keep hope alive so I can renew your hope. I was a loser, and now I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And God will do the same in your life today. If it's Friday in your life, don't ever forget, Sunday's coming, and where hope is in a risen Savior. He wrote to us to encourage us so that we would have hope. And if you need hope, then you need to be here so that we can go through this and be encouraged together. Because after Jesus said this to Peter, and I'll close on this, He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, I love you. He said, then I want you to tend my lambs. He said, well, Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, well, then shepherd my sheep. And again, the third time, he said, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter got frustrated. He said, Lord, you know I do. He said, then I want you to tend my sheep. And that's what Peter was doing as he wrote these words. He was encouraging the flock of God because they were about to undergo persecution in a world that looked at them and thought that they were strangers and they were aliens and they didn't belong here. And neither did they and neither do we. And when persecution comes, we're going to need all the hope that only God can give us. And that's what this study is going to be all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you just for an overview of what you can do in a life that has been broken and crushed. God, help us to understand that you are in the, the, the specialized business of taking broken pieces and turning them into masterpieces. And God, as we get discouraged and we feel like there's no hope, may we be reminded of the life of Peter and his past failures. And you, in your, in your awesome knowledge, knew when you named him Rock that one day he would be a rock. Though he failed in between and though he was crushed and he was broken, God, in your knowledge of every one of us, know our destiny. And you have called us all to be children of God to those who believe in your name. God, help us to see that and to be encouraged by that and be filled with hope because of it. And just as you've done in the life of Peter, we pray that you continue to do it on our lives as we fail on a daily basis. 
that you're a God not only of hope, but you're a God of second chances. And we thank you and praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.